Viewer discretion is advised. Karma, evolving from a Sanskrit word meaning action or deed. Karma is a concept associated with rebirth, that one's present life and how they choose to lead it will dictate the nature and quality of future lives. Karma is a high philosophical and spiritual principle taught by a number of religions from the East, including Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism, among others. It is written of karma in a millennia-old Hindu text known as the Vedanta, that one becomes good through good deeds, and evil through evil deeds. It is a complex aspect of Eastern mysticisms, subject to centuries of discussion and debate, causing rifts and establishments of new schools of religious teachings, the alteration of ancient doctrine, and may have actually sparked the earliest documented discussions of free will opposing destiny. And then, the term caught on in the Western world. And we, as we do with all good things, bastardized the term. This week, my friends, we are exploring some real-life stories of poetic justice. When what goes around consequentially comes back around. And in the style of a bastard's savage west, these are Tales of Karma. Sunshine. It is a beautiful Thursday evening here in the great Australian state of Victoria. Except it's not actually that beautiful. It's winter, so it's quite the opposite. It's cold and it's windy and it's raining. That cold, constant winter's rain, and it's also not Thursday. Nor is it evening. Time of publication, notwithstanding, it is about midday Wednesday as I record this. I am sorry for so wantonly breaking the illusion. My bad. <laughs> anyway, Cassidy is alive, episode 25. And we are back in full force, my friends. It feels good. Liberation through creativity. I have sorely missed that. I have sorely missed it these past two months. One thing that I have not missed, however, writing all day. And yes, writing all night. And I mean physically putting pen to paper in 10, 12, 
15-hour sessions, compiling research, trying to maintain some degree of originality and sanity, putting and plotting and, oh my god, my brain is fried, just creating a podcast, <laughs> all while your right hand, right, your right hand, it slowly, slowly succumbs to the effects of carpal tunnel, and doing this for like 12, why did I say 12, 4 different episodes, and then still, at the end of the day, calling yourself lazy. Now, yes, I fully acknowledge that most, well, all of these problems can be instantly resolved by taking notes digitally as opposed to writing them down. But moving on, here is the return of a familiar segment. All of you listen up! There was one week ago Ladies and gentlemen, a thank you and a warm welcome back to Mr. Tony Shavani. Okay, okay. This week, I would like to begin with new Pokemon Snap. I mentioned this last week. That this is what I'm playing right now. I'm not finished with it just yet, but there are a few things that I would like to discuss. First off, Tedium. When I first started playing this game, I was met with an unexpected mechanic. Along with collecting pictures of each Pokemon, they also have four distinct, we're going to say poses, that you must photograph. And my feelings are quite mixed therein. On one hand, yes, I appreciate the meats on this bone. I love the experimentation. And yes, I love taking photos of these Pokemon in their different behavioral states. However, let's say you take a photo of Charmander. You take a few photos, I should say, of Charmander. And of those, you've captured three of four of these poses. You can only submit one of them. You have to play through the stage again to take photos of the rest. And you have to tediously submit them one by one, painstakingly. It's worse when you take a great picture of a Pokemon in a a pose that you've already submitted, and you want to submit that one, but you've also accidentally captured a pose that has eluded you, and you kind of have to go with that one, you know, you have to, you have to make that choice, but you always go with the, with this one that you just can't recreate, and you know you can't recreate it. I feel like you should be able to submit multiple, one for each pose. It would avoid some level of tedium, you know. Oh my god, of course there's a truck right outside my window. I hope you can't hear that. Another thing. These fucking deep water levels. Thalassophobia. The fear of or anxiety associated with the ocean depths. I hate 
these levels. I am terrified of the dark void that is the deep sea. And New Pokemon Snap does these environments just believably enough to make me uncomfortable. But in its defense, I consider it a good thing that a game can make me feel such a way. Let alone a game about taking photographs of fucking Pokemon. All in all, I am very much enjoying Pokemon, a new Pokemon Snap. More updates on that in coming weeks. Next up, we're going to talk a little bit about One Piece. I am all caught up. Now, this concerns recent chapters of the Wano Kuni arc. So if you're not, not up to date with the manga, you might want to skip ahead to avoid spoilers. I don't mind if you do so. You have five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Spoilers coming. So, in Wano Kuni, we were introduced to what become one of, who became one of my favorite characters, Kikunojo of the Lingering Snow, more commonly known as Okiku. As one of Kazuki Onan's Red Scabbards, she is a badass female samurai. And get this, get this. She is a trans woman. And Oda-san wrote her respectably. She's not an Okama, played for comedy, not Otokonoko, that kind of, you know, any kind of etchy bullshit, anything like that. Okiku is just a trans woman. And I fucking love it. Anyway, a few weeks ago, in chapter 1014, the traitorous Kanjiro, who was also an exceptionally, exceptionally well-written character, cut her down. And the scene played out like a tragic death scene. It's not confirmed that Kikunojo is dead, but let's face it, she's probably dead. The Red Scabbards are not surviving this arc. The, the following chapter saw the likely death of Kinemon, old, reliable, been with them since Punk Hazard, Kinemon. And just as an aside, seriously, Kinemon's one of the best characters in all of One Piece. Let's just, let's just say it for what it is. This guy is amazing. I love this character. But yeah, I don't expect a fake-out death with two samurai within two chapters, and if anybody makes it out alive, you'd think most likely it would have to be Kinemon. Definitely Momonosuke, but I don't know. I'm not really counting him. I mean, specifically the Red Scabbards. So yeah, Kikunojo, our trans samurai hero, is probably dead. And all of the shipping of her and Zoro sadly won't bring her back. Really, the Wano Kuni arc might be my favorite arc in all of One Piece. Let me know your thoughts on this evolving story. And finally, we'll be touching on Australian politics. How fun. Specifically, we're going to be talking about this walking abortion. Barnaby Joyce. What a time to be alive. There's a lot to unpack here. What you need to know of Barnaby Joyce is that he is part of Australia's authoritative right wing. He is one of those staunch conservatives that is basically to the point of self-parody. 
Poe's Law, if you know what that is. We'll be discussing that in a couple of weeks. Don't you worry. He says ridiculous things that come off as kind of funny, but then they become absolutely hilarious when you realize that he is actually serious. One of which, a suggestion to completely drop the disability pension. And when pressed, <laughs> he told the people that pressed him. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Take two. One of the things that Barnaby Joyce has said, <laughs> he suggested to completely drop the disability pension. When pressed on this matter, he said that the, the people that are medically incapable of working, <laughs> Barnaby Joyce affirmed that it is for doctors to decide whether or not they are medically incapable of working. You don't fucking say, Barnaby. In what way is that a refutation? If you do away with DSP, what doctors have to say is irrelevant, is it not? I mean, not to mention, as it currently stands, it is not for medicine to decide. I've noted before that the state has rejected my own medical documents because they define depression differently than modern medicine. I have been medically considered disabled for about 10-ish years now. I can verify this with multiple medical documents, though it is not legally recognized. So Mr. Joyce, you tell me, is it up to doctor's determination? Or is it the state's understanding, the state's misunderstanding, I should say? <clears throat> so, old Barnaby has been in the news of late. Following accusations of sexual misconduct, Along with extramarital affairs, he had stepped down from his role as the leader of the Nationals Party. But Bang Bang Barnaby is back. And now he is our Deputy Prime Minister. That's kind of like the Vice President. This was following a party spill, which is a whole nother deal in of itself. Uh, if you're interested, just Google Australian Party Spill. And you should find what you're looking for. But back to our mutual friend, Barnaby Joyce. He has also been appointed to a special task force concerning the safety of women in politics. Fuck off, Barnaby. Fuck off. <laughs> so that was my week. And now, Tales of Karma. Transition. And here we are at the meat of the episode. I have already explained the concept of karma, so let's not fuck around and just get into our first tale. This is the alleged story of the Brazen Bull. Uh, I always mispronounce this, I'm sorry. Acragus, Sicily. 570 to 1554 BC. The reign of Phalaris, a vicious tyrant that is renowned by history for his cruelty. Phalaris had a penchant for cruel punishments, subjecting his enemies and those that wronged him or the state to horrific methods of torture. Stories of Phalaris tell of a man who would personally kill enemies and far more far more 
atrocious stories, Speaker Phalaris cannibalizing infants. Top 10 tyrants even more evil than Adolf Hitler. According to legend, a new torture device was proposed to and constructed for Phalaris by Perilous of Athens. This would be the Brazen Bull, a bronze life-sized bull sculpture used for executing criminals in a cruel and truly dehumanizing way. Those condemned to death would be stuffed inside the bull through a hatch on its side. A fire would then be lit beneath the brazen bull, roasting the victim alive. There was an acoustic sound device inside the bull's head, and this would convert the screams of death to the sound of bovine bellows. Just very creative. (laughs) It's very creative. Valaris was not a fan of this auditory trick, and he actually took it as an insult. One might assume that Valaris would have preferred the pleasant songs of anguish. He ordered that Pala- uh, Perilous, sorry, they have very similar names. He ordered that Perilous of Athens test his device personally to prove that the sound system actually worked. This was a trick as Perilous was immediately locked inside of his creation, and flame was lit. Phalaris allowed Perilous to suffer for a while, but released him from the brazen bull before death. Legend states that Phalaris later killed Perilous by pushing him off a cliff. The story ends as Karma enters. Phalaris was overthrown by Telemachus, and he was roasted alive within the brazen bull. The meal had been served, and it was just desserts. Here's another quick story of a tyrant getting what he deserved. Reinhard Heydrich. Long story short, he was one of Hitler's guys, and he led the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia, now known as the Czech Republic, and he was ruthless. Along with the standard suppression of native identity and attempts to Germanize the Czechs, Heydrich had also ordered 100 deaths in just his first day in power. An alleged 2 million were killed as per direct orders of Heydrich, which has earned him the historical title, title The Butcher of Prague. Karma struck on May 27th, 1942. In the form of a grenade thrown by two British airmen, Jan Kubis and Joseph Gabik. Heydrich had been critically wounded, suffering for a week before finally succumbing to his shrapnel wounds and the infection they brought. The Butcher of Prague died a slow painful, unenviable death. What goes around comes back around. But it's not always negative, and you can see that in the story of one Chris Trokey. Chris was born 10 weeks premature, and he had developed a high fever 
that threatened his life as an infant. Enter Michael Shannon, M.D. Dr. Shannon was a pediatrician, and he forsook sleep and his own well-being to save baby Chris's life. Thirty years later, now all grown up, Chris Trokey was a paramedic. He was called in to the site of a car wreck. After firefighters had caused, had caused, had ceased the flames and used the jaws of life to remove the person inside, Trokey took this injured man into his ambulance and sustained his life until he had de delivered him to a local hospital. And as you may have guessed, the man from the car wreck was Dr. Michael Shannon, the same Michael Shannon that had saved Chris Trogi's life as a baby. A story as beautiful as it is unbelievable. And it's a real story. It This really happens. Before heading into a break, we're going to cover a tale of karma from my own experience. This is a story that I will never forget. Because it's fucking hilarious. This was 2010, 2011-ish. I was almost 18. A friend of mine, we'll call him Mr. Sitting. We'll call him Mr. Sitting. <laughs> Mr. Sitting. He had injured his... I think it was his arm. I actually don't remember. But whatever. It doesn't matter. He was injured. And he had recently stayed in the hospital. Now what you need to know about what we call Mr. Sitting. Is that he was kind of a dope. And I say that with lots of love. But he's a bit of a dense. Everyone will tell you that. He himself will agree with this. <laughs> he's just a bit of a dense. He'd actually left some of his belongings at hospital. And he needed to go pick them up. So I went with him. We were going to make a day out of it. You know what it is. You know, someone has a little task and you just go out and just do whatever for the whole day. And just work that little task into the day. We all do. We've all done this. On our way, walking from the train station to the hospital, we passed this guy in one of those pimped out kind of cars. I don't know cars. So the best picture that I can paint for you is to say that it had a lot of work done. A lot of work done to it. The wheels were tiny, so it rode really low. And it was this ugly fluorescent green character. A character color. Obviously, this guy's pride and joy. Screaming loudly, I have a small penis and I can't get laid. <laughs> One of those guys. He slowed his shitbox down to a crawl and started shouting random insults at us for no particular reason. This guy, clearly in his 30s, just yelling at two teenagers. So fucking cool. <laughs> he followed us all the way to the hospital. He paid to park at the hospital and just waited for us in the parking lot. From the reception desk, we actually saw him doing a couple of burnouts, so yeah, this guy was crazy, I suppose, he was probably just nuts. <laughs> we took the back exit to avoid him, 
and we let the receptionist know what was going on. She said she'd call the police, whatever. We were like one block from the hospital when he found us. And he proceeded to pick up from where he left off. So we took a detour through a park. But he just followed us to the other side. We were crossing the road and he no shit just zooms past, tries to run us down like a complete fucking maniac he performed a u-turn and came speeding back and that is when karma struck the hood of his car blows upwards and smashes through his windshield and he then sort of lost control and veered off into a tree just smashed his passenger side right into a tree basically destroying his vehicle what was mr sitting he described this as a write-off and that means to my understanding it's like it would be more expensive to fix the car than it would be to just buy a new one so pretty bad but karma was not actually done yet just as soon as he had made impact with the tree a police car came turning around the corner i'm not sure how i can divulge too much but this guy had actually lost his license recently so he was driving unlicensed he was it was for this kind of behavior he lost his license and apparently i didn't we couldn't confirm this but apparently his car was also that exact same car was going to be impounded but he narrowly avoided those charges so to add a bit of irony to it all i'm just <laughs> it's the most amazing and funny thing that I've ever been part of, and I'm so glad that I was there. If you have ever had a real-life experience with karma, let me know. I would love to read it. Okay, we have a few more tales of karma to talk about coming up real soon, but for the moment, it is time for the Song of the Week. Look at this new overlay. Awesome. And if you're just listening on Spotify, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Watch on YouTube. This week's song, it's not totally about karma, but karma is one of the themes that is discussed in this song. This is by the fantastic Incubus. Great band. Great band. Those first few records, oh my god. God, oof, so good. Incubus, really good. They're kind of, uh now, but they're old stuff. Really good. This is from my favorite Incubus album, which is also among my all-time favorite albums, full stop. 1999's Make Yourself. The track is called When It Comes. We'll be back shortly.
star or jet set executive? Rock and roll jet set exec? No problem. A second home in Aspen or Saint-Tropez? Both? Done. Now, a nice girlfriend that mom will love or a bad girl? Well, nice, but with an adventurous streak. You're not a man accustomed to compromise, I see. Which brings me to the matter of your automobile. One must ride in style. Fisker Karma. <laughs> Absolutely not. No associate of mine will drive a hybrid that gets 50 gas-free miles, has reclaimed wood interior trim, and a huge solar roof. Not gonna happen. The karma is style, it's performance, it's respect for the planet. It's the perfect package. I have arrangements in place. People to take care of. Oil, gas industries, they depend on me. I hate clean air. It hurts my eyes. Sorry. Just lost another one. Fisker Karma. Performance and luxury that won't cost your soul. back my friends on the topic of karma you know what show is really great my name is Earl I fucking adored this show in this mid to late 2000 sitcom Jason Lee plays Earl Hickey a reformed criminal who upon learning of karma creates a list of all of his sins and one by one he sets off to right his wrongs. He's joined by his brother, Randy, for the most part, played by Ethan Supley, and just really great. Ethan Supley used to be really fucking funny. I don't know what happened to him. He hasn't been in much really good stuff lately, <laughs> I'll say. Jason Lee, too. But back to My Name is Earl. It was abruptly cancelled after four seasons, despite ma maintaining good ratings. 
And everybody on the production end did want to continue with the show. I don't know why it was cancelled. It just sort of was cancelled. My Name is Earl was a fantastic piece of media. Like, it seriously was. Not only was it fucking hilarious, and not only did it have a colourful and fairly memorable set of characters, but it was also thoughtful, and it was often really heartwarming. One of my favourite episodes is the season one finale, entitled Number One. In this story, Earl attempts to make amends for the very first item on his list of misdeeds, which is his last crime before he discovered karma. He had stolen $10 from a man's pockets. And he had done this at a convenience store, so lucky for him, he could check the security camera footage. And he does. He reviews the footage from the day of the incident, and he finds that the man he'd pickpocketed was going to use that money to buy a scratch lottery ticket. Now, this is a very big deal. It's like a crucial revelation. In the pilot episode of the series, Earl actually wins $100,000 from a scratch lottery ticket. But he is immediately then hit by a car, and he lost the ticket. It is from his hospital bed where he discovers karma and he decides to turn his life around. And after only a few days of performing good deeds, he rediscovers the ticket and the $100,000 with it. Jumping back to the season one finale, you now understand the situation, or at least you should. Earl did not just owe this man $10, but 100000 He eventually tracks him down. His name is Paul, and with an apology, Earl gives Paul $95,000 in cash. He promises to get him the remaining 5 k whenever he's able to. Earl, who is now flat broke, continues with his list, betting on good karma. He has no food. He loses his room at the motel where he and his brother were living and he is eventually forced to sell his car for $1,200, in which Earl selflessly decides to give to Paul, because he owes him that money. Earl and his brother Randy take a bus to Paul's house, but they actually encounter Paul unexpectedly much sooner, as the bus they're riding, in fact, hits Paul. It just crashes into him. We're now in hospital, where a recovering Paul drops some revelatory, oh my god, drops that revelatory information. On the fateful day from the pilot episode, moments after Earl had been hit by a car, Paul himself had picked up the winning lottery tickets, only only to be hit by the exact same car, losing the ticket himself. Paul was actually not a great person. He wasn't a criminal like Earl, but he wasn't a great guy. Upon being given the money by Earl, he flaunted his wealth, even openly mocking a homeless man and refusing him change. It was then that Paul was hit by a bus. Bad karma. Can you spare a dollar? 
I can spare thousands of dollars, but not for you. Oh, oh, damn it! It's that karma stuff you told me about, Earl. Old lady karma didn't want me to have that money. Bob Martin was a CPR instructor at the West Metro Fire Department in Baltimore, Maryland. During his career, Bob had trained people in the hundreds, sharing his expertise with not only emergency services, but a large selection of the local Jefferson County. Everybody up to the staff at the, Met- at the Meadows Golf Club in which he frequented. Now retired in the year that was 2014, Bob Martin was enjoying a round of afternoon golf with his brother Bill. That was when he suffered a heart attack. Various people played a part in saving Bob's life. His brother Bill, local sheriff's deputies, other golfers and the Meadows Golf Club staff, and of course, paramedics. In an example of good karma, each of these people were trained in CPR by Bob Martin himself. This is the story of Ian Gibson. Gibson was a professional big game hunter based in Zimbabwe. The 55-year-old man spent his time tracking and killing animals for personal gratification and, crucially, profit. In 2015, Gibson was joined by a party of American trophy hunters on a trip to Zimbabwe's Zambezi Valley. I apologize for any pronunciation errors. Gibson had been tracking an immature bull elephant. Of course, an endangered species. The group eventually came across a young elephant and attempted to get close to it so that they might assess its ivory. That was when the beast went into full charge. Gibson managed to, t- to fire off one shot before being trampled and crushed to death. The young elephant survived, though for some reason it actually chose to not collect Ian Gibson's teeth for their supposed value. Some may call it a fitting end, but I'm sure that we can all agree that this is karma at work. <laughs> Unless, of course, you don't believe in karma, in which case... I don't know. <laughs> Aesop's fable, The Ant and the Dove, is more or less an allegory of this Western idea of karma. In the fable, the dove notices the drowning ants and helps it from the water. Later, a bird catcher is laying down twigs to capture the dove. This is witnessed by the ants, who then stings the bird catcher on the foot. The birdcatcher drops the twigs in pain and the dove flies away to safety. Another example of karma in fiction can be seen in the fairy tale The Beauty and the Beast. I'm sure we're all familiar with at least the Disney movie. Is it Disney? I'm pretty sure it's Disney. I probably sound stupid. I'm not really a Disney girl. (laughs) It's not my thing. I like the shows. The you know, like, the, the cartoon shows, Saturday morning Disney was my thing. I don't like the movies. I, I don't care. Anyway, Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Sorry for the tangent. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. And this one is quite interesting. 
as it takes from both the Eastern and Western concepts of karma. In Beauty and the Beast, the prince does not show kindness to a poor old woman. This woman turns out to actually be a witch. She transforms the prince, rebirths him, if you will, to his famous beastly form. There are a bunch of examples of karma in fiction, but we're focusing on real life, historical legends, whatever. But those are just two of my favorites, along with the My Name is Earl thing from earlier. But those two are two of my favorites. I really like those. Next, we're going to talk about Tantalus. Tantalus is a tragic and despised figure in Greek mythology. He had been banished by the higher gods for attempting to steal ambrosia. Some time passes, and in an attempt to win back the respect of the gods, Tantalus invites them to a meal at his home. This meal, however, was Tantalus's own children. He had killed them and fed them to the gods. For this, Tantalus was eternally damned to residence in this place called the Fields of Punishment. Here, Tantalus would starve forever. Each time that he would try to eat or drink, the food or water would move out of reach. The fate of Tantalus is believed to have been written as a warning of betrayal, to fear the wrath that gods might have for the betrayal. Though it is commonly cited as an example of karma. And, you know, I, I guess in a retrofitted kind of way, I would agree. I mean, the concept, that whole Western concept of karma wouldn't have really existed at the time. But I suppose, yeah, you can sort of retroactively say, yeah, it fits. It, it, the shoe fits, you know, <laughs> shoe fits. Karma is no stranger to South Africa's Kruger Park. His two stories of poachers meeting Lady Karma in the South African National Reserve. The first takes place in 2010, when a man with an undisclosed name was believed to have been hunting hippos. As an aside, the hippopotamus is a fucking crazy animal. They are extremely territorial and aggressive, they weigh tons, they're fast and they're powerful. A hippopotamus that's not even fully grown could quite literally bite you in half. The hippopotamus, make no mistake, is a killing machine. Yet some people are brave and stupid enough to try to hunt them. Nonetheless, a group was seen setting snare traps allegedly intended for hippos in 2010. The surviving members of this group none of which are named, and, you know, they didn't share much information. This is the incident as it is believed to have occurred, what has been pieced together. While setting the traps, the group angered a nearby bloat of hippopotami, and they were chased. They managed to escape, but then encountered a pride of lions, <laughs> who mauled a member of the poacher's party to death. The next story from Kruger Park takes us 
to 2019. I won't take as long here, it's a much more straightforward story. Basically, this poacher was believed to be hunting Rhino when he, they were trampled to death by elephants. Their remains were then eaten by lions. I would think that the true moral of these two stories is a relatively simple one. Don't hunt or fuck with wild animals, you fucking piece of shits. Leave them be. I, I don't know why people do this. This is so... Get fucked. Oh my god. The last tale of karma for today brings us back full circle to where we began. We're going to learn about Muammar Gaddafi, another ruthless tyrant who got what they deserved in the end. Now, obviously, this is going to be a severely condensed version of the story of Gaddafi. I... That, that, that's just one of those topics that are so huge. If you're interested in Gaddafi, look him up. <laughs> I, I could never do it justice. So Gaddafi ruled over Libya with an iron fist for over 40 years. He was a known funder of terrorism globally, and along with repression of his own countrymen, he was directly responsible for death and destruction across the Middle East. And Gaddafi met a brutal end. He rose to prominence in Middle Eastern politics through his part in the Arab nationalist movement. This was a revolutionary movement that first emerged in the 1940s in Egypt. It pushed ideologies such as socialism and secularism. Eventually, groups did splinter off uh, that um, promoted Marxism, that kind of thought too. A young Gaddafi, he was a child of poverty, trained by the Libyan military. He was attracted to the movements. In its heyday in the 1960s, he was head of the revolution that would depose Idris, king of Libya, in 1969. And he would become the new leader of Libya in his mid-twenties. Really overlooked are these early years of Gaddafi's reign. He made several reforms to Libyan policy, almost prompting a cultural shift. Well, not even almost. He did prompt a major cultural shift and saw more as his reign continued. He'd also greatly endeared himself to the general public. Believe it or not, Gaddafi was kind of a good thing for Libya, for a short while. Obviously not in the long run, but for a short while in the beginning he was. He boosted the national economy, growing several industries, most notably perhaps the oil industry. He created many new jobs, and enough state revenue to actually double minimum wage. He also strongly promoted gender equality, and what amounts to, I guess you could say, social justice in the 1970s Middle East, whatever that would be, whatever <laughs> social justice in 1970s Middle East. Kind of progressive. <laughs> it was on the world stage, however, that the Muammar Gaddafi that lives in infamy reared his head. 
In case you're unfamiliar, Gaddafi was the Bashar al-Ashad of his time. He was the West's poster child for evil in the Arab world. And Gaddafi, he more or less hated the West. He was all about Arab solidarity. In stark, very stark juxtaposition of the former King Idris and his strong Western allegiances. In the early 1970s, Gaddafi began funding terrorist groups to antagonize the United States and the UK. A notable attack funded by the Libyan regime was the Munich Massacre. This occurred at the 1972 Olympic Games, in which Palestinian terrorist group Black September held members of the Israeli Olympic team hostage, killing two of them. Throughout the 1970s, Gaddafi enacted what he called the People's Revolution, which, in short, involved seizing absolute power, eliminating all traces of foreign influence, and militarizing the Libyan people to protect this revolution. We're now at the height of the Cold War, and in 1981, U.S. President Ronald Reagan took a hardline approach to Gaddafi. He claimed that Libya was a puppet regime of the Soviets. Gaddafi responded to this by exaggerating his relations with the Soviet Union, though the Soviets did not trust the, the Libyans. Uh, I believe that they thought that he was just a maniac, very untrustworthy guy. <laughs> so tensions between America and Libya were very high, where they would remain for decades. You can read about that, just like Gaddafi himself, in your own time, though, as there is so much to cover, I'm choosing to gloss over it. If you're interested, it has been covered extensively, as you might expect. 1988, Gaddafi's regime began to develop chemical weapons. And though there is a far deeper and nuanced story, it's more or less at this point that civil unrest in Libya becomes a growing problem for Gaddafi. And the dawn of a new revolution looms over his reign. Over the next 23 years, national unrest would steadily grow, and it traveled outwards across the Middle East and the greater world. As Gaddafi's power was challenged, he grew more aggressive to maintain it, boosting military force and suppressing the rights of the Libyan people. By 2011, the rebellion had grown so strong that it sparked a full-blown civil war, and Gaddafi did not hesitate to use full power of the military on his own citizenry. Thousands died, and they all died to maintain Gaddafi's reign. With the help of the intervening NATO, the rebelling population defeated Gaddafi's regime, finding Gaddafi himself cowering for his life in a drainage pipe. And this is where karma enters in the most vicious way. Gaddafi was beaten near death. He was beaten to near death by members of a local militia. His injured body was then paraded through the streets and waved through the air like a banner of great victory. He was sodomized with a bayonet while still living. And eventually, he was shot with a bullet 
in the skull. The longtime tyrant of Libya was tortured, mutilated, and left to die on the cold ground of a war-torn country that he had once himself fought to liberate. Gaddafi died as a vicious, selfish warlord with a whimper by the hands of comic justice. And those, my friends, were just a few tales of karma. I did not intend for so many of them to be so dark. It just sort of came out that way. But whatever. Nonetheless, we are going to take just a wee little short break. And following that, we'll be back to wrap up this week's show. I'll be back in just a moment, guys. Nature. It's natural. It's beautiful. It's serene. It's boring. Make friends with Mother Nature. Snap into a Slim Jim. Nature, ain't it grand? Got any more Slim Jims? Oh, yeah. That is all that she wrote for this week, my friends. Literally. Those were all of my notes, and I have nothing else written, starting now. (laughs) I hope that you enjoyed the episode this week as much as I enjoyed putting it all together. Tales of Karma felt fitting, bouncing back from having been doxxed. And it does feel back, does feel back, oh my god. (laughs) It does feel good being back at it, making podcasts, having that creative outlets. Hell yes. And I also apologize for my weird voice this week. You ever had that raw throat where your throat's just raw for no particular reason and it doesn't go away and is there for like three days? That's where I'm at. Where your voice is just a little bit deeper than it usually is. Oh my god, the dysphoria. And I couldn't hold this off any longer. I should have recorded this days ago, but I had to delay. I'm behind schedule. Oh my god, no. Then it'll be okay, because I'm done. I am done, and I can get to editing, and you're already listening, so hell yes. Hell yes. Next week. Next week, it is my biggest, I should say, largest undertaking yet. We are going to begin our big two-week dive into The Simpsons. This is going to be a kind of rise and fall story. Um, Well, The Simpsons, you can't say it's fallen because it still does really big business. It's still a huge franchise, right? But the quality has slipped. The fucking quality, am I right? Zombie Simpsons. That's what they call it. Zombie Simpsons. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not get ahead of ourselves because you're going to hear all about Zombie Simpsons two weeks from now. Next week, it is part one. The Simpsons part one, the epic rise of Homer J. Simpson. And it's going to be interesting. I can guarantee you that. Until then, I want you to enjoy your week. Thank you for joining me. And regardless of if you personally believe in karma, why don't you go out and do some good? Do something nice for somebody without expecting anything in return. Shockingly, 
I don't believe in karma myself. I'm actually a Navayana Buddhist. To oversimplify it a little, everything is an allegory or it's a metaphor to the Navayana Buddhist. Karma to me is also a metaphor. It's a nice idea. The principle of karma, it creates an ideal direction to lead one's life. Just try to be good and do good things. Over the next week, work on that because we all could. I know that I could. I will see you lovely people then. Cassidy loves you. Bye. Sucks. Let's play Hungry Hungry Hippos.